You're listening to TIP. If one home generated, call it $1,000 in rent per month, then if I could multiply that across sort of 10 plus homes and it's fully paid off or something, this becomes sort of my passive income and I could go and retire on a beach. At least that was kind of the initial vision. In this week's episode, I talk with Andrew Luong about real estate investing in California, why buying the highest yielding properties on paper isn't necessarily a good idea, why he wanted to start a startup in the real estate industry, why he chooses to invest in single family homes, how the turnkey business model works, and much, much more. Andrew Luong is the co-founder and CEO of Dorvest, a venture-backed startup on a mission to advance financial security for all. Andrew is also a real estate investor, realtor, and mortgage loan officer. With a passion for technology and personal finance, Andrew created Dorvest to enable everyone to access financial security through investing in the $3 trillion single-family rental market. I had a lot of fun recording this episode. Andrew is a great guest and shares an interesting business model that I really enjoyed learning about. I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Andrew Luong. Andrew, welcome to the show. Robert, I'm to be here. Big fan of the pod. I appreciate that. I know growing up, you witnessed some challenges from the recession, at least the last one that we were in 2008, 2009, because your parents had some homes foreclosed upon. How did that impact your real estate investing journey and now as a founder of a real estate startup? The backstory, as you, you kind of just alluded to there, was I uh, grew up during the, the previous recession and my parents faced sort of financial hardship having uh, had a house foreclosed upon. I think the piece, even beyond sort of the financial impact that re- really impacted me was just like the psychological impact. Like you could imagine being sort of this kid and seeing because of our finances, it could have torn our, our family apart. And so really sort of shaped my view on financial security, made me obsessed with personal finance. How do I sort of make myself resilient? As I was growing up, how do I make myself resilient from sort of what my parents had gone through? That sort of long story short led me to real estate investing and building a a small portfolio for myself sort of nights and weekends. And then along that journey, kind of had friends and colleagues and coworkers come to me for advice on kind of how to get into real estate. And there was never really a platform to kind of point them towards. So long story short, that ultimately led to Dorvest. So let's talk about, before we get into Dorvest, let's talk a little bit more about that, that small portfolio you say you built. You know, It was a double digit real estate portfolio and you did it by the age of 24. Tell us a bit about how you got started and what strategies you were using. Kind of walk us through your process there. The backstory was found my way to startup land working in mainly sales. Before that, I was like a struggling pre-med student. I just couldn't like withdrew from calculus my first time. And then they made me take it again. And I ended up failing because they didn't let me withdraw twice. That that was kind of the, the backstory to Andrew. And somehow that degenerate ended up in startup land and had a good paying job and enjoyed my work, etc. And given that 
I started to have an income and amass some savings, etc. That led me to exploring ways to find financial security for myself. And I think it's probably a similar story to you. I was kind of looking for cash flow, real estate. After lots of Googling and listening to podcasts and things of that nature, real estate kind of became the avenue for that. It was like, if one home generated, call it $1,000 in rent per month, then if I could multiply that across sort of 10 plus homes and it's fully paid off or something, this becomes sort of my passive income and I could go and retire on a beach. At least that was kind of the initial vision. That led me to exploring where to buy my first investment home. I ended up landing in Sacramento, California, which is roughly a two-hour two drive from San Francisco where I was living at the time and still I'm living now. The crazy part was this was in 2014. It was a I ended up buying a three-bedroom, one-bath, $96,000 home from a dude that bought it for $40,000 right out of the bottom of that last recession. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, this guy... I probably hit the peak of the market. This guy got a double 100% return in a handful of years. Like, uh, where's this market going to go from here? But anyways, I bought the 96K home. There was a resident in place already too. My goal... I mean, I had a really busy day job. My goal was to find something that was as turnkey as possible. They had a resident in place. And so I ended up buying that house. It was 96K home that rented for $1,000 a month. And then along the way, made like literally all the mistakes in the textbook that happy to go into, whatever. So why did becoming a doctor not work out? And I want to go into that deal and dive into your real estate a little bit more, but I'm curious why being a doctor didn't work out. When I look back, I kind of look at my career. The analogy that I often use is kind of like a, like a Roomba, like the robots that clean your house. They're just going straight, straight, straight. And then they hit a wall and they're like, oh, there's a wall. So then it turns and it goes and it hits another wall. And then it turns and it goes again. And at some point, it cleans up the entire house. And so that's kind of how I felt about that leg of the journey and many more legs down the road as well. But uh, the short of it was, I was hoping to be a doctor because it seemed like a really straight, clear-cut path to making a decent income with good benefits and all that good stuff that I think I was taught to strive for as an adult. The issue was uh, I n- nothing stuck. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but um, like I couldn't get through calculus, I couldn't get through chemistry, I couldn't get through biology or any of these other classes, and so at some point I had to throw in the towel and sort of switch directions. Do you still own that property today, the one that you mentioned up in Sacramento? I don't. So there was a handful of homes that I bought in rapid succession, similar to that one. What one of the major learnings for me was that 96K home was the cheapest home in the entire city at the time. Um, And so at the time, I was like, okay, well, what's the best rent to price ratio? And it was typically the lower the price the home, the higher the rent to price ratio. And so I found that home. Turns out it was in a really tough neighborhood. The home was a little bit older as well. I was consistently getting turnover and break ins. And like, I could tell you of a story of one time it was, I had a turnover. The home was vacant. I went to check up on the home and there was like a homeless lady cooking. And then she got pissed when I opened the door to enter my house. This was hopefully this paints you an image of kind of what this home looked like. Long story short, it it was just really difficult to hold on to a home like that for, for the long run. But I ended up making a good chunk of profit on that. And so grateful that that was my start. But unfortunately, I don't own that that home anymore. 
as soon as you said it was the cheapest property in the city, I knew that it was not in a good area because the cheapest property in a, in a town is never in a in a good area. So I knew, you know, being a little bit more experienced now than maybe you were then, I knew that it probably wasn't a, a, a good area. So where'd you go from there? You decided that was not the strategy you wanted to use. What what did you start to buy and what, how did you invest after that? The first four were very similar to that. I don't recall the exact numbers, but 96 was that first one. Maybe the most expensive was a 110 or something. The crazy part is around that time, they all rented for about 1,000, 1,000, or maybe 1,100 or, or, or so a month, had sort of this nice on paper rent to price ratio. For probably four years or so, I held onto those homes, consistently faced turnover, all these horror stories of like the home turnover. I sort of do renovations, put in new appliances, people break in, take all the appliances, I go put in new appliances, and then we got to lock everything and like board up the windows and all that crazy stuff. And by the way, like I, this wasn't my full-time job. This was uh, like Fridays after work or Saturday morning when I'm off work or something like that. I would drive up to Sacramento and kind of manage all of this. That was kind of the initial cohort of homes that I purchased and owned. And then after that experience and sort of the heartache from that, I began to graduate into sort of slightly less yielding homes, but homes that tend to be in higher quality neighborhoods and perhaps less turnover, etc. I moved up to nicer parts of Sacramento at the time. And then ultimately, I ended up in Texas. And that's kind of where the majority of my current portfolio is now. Why did that not scare you out of real estate? Like, why did you not let that deter you? A lot of people would just be like, after this experience, I am done. I am not buying any more real estate. I mean, it sounds like you did some self reflection. You're like, okay, I made the mistake of buying in the wrong area. So maybe if I don't do that, then it'll be better. But I'm just kind of curious what was your mindset and thought process in terms of like why you didn't quit there? I'd like to think that there's sort of this mastermind, but I think there's a combination of emotion and sort of uh, the quantitative side of it. From the emotional side of it, it was like, I was just this really stubborn guy. And there's probably a stubbornness mixed with some naivete where I was like, okay, well, I just got to figure it out, right? Like, um, it seems like there's something working, but it seems like if I tweak some things, for instance, if I moved up market a little bit, maybe I could sort of prevent some of these issues that, that I had. That stubbornness that pressed me to keep trying and keep iterating on kind of my real estate investing model, there was that part. And then, of course, there was the other side of it where, I mean, after three or four years, I could see clearly the benefits of owning the homes from the rental income that I was generating from sort of the upside appreciation that I happened to back into and things of that nature. And I think but mixed with those two points, uh, it, it became clear to me, like, I wanted to own real estate. The goal was not to purely optimize for short-term income but really finding great homes that I could continue to amass a portfolio and hold on for a long run. What I always find funny or interesting about kind of people who buy properties in this area and not necessarily your situation, but just generally about buying real estate in subpar areas is that they'll usually point to the returns and almost always the returns are in an Excel spreadsheet and they're like, well, look, this is going to be an amazing returning property. And you even said, well, I, I went up to a, a lower yielding property. And what's interesting is that in my experience is those properties that are in bad areas on paper, yes, they look like they return significantly more than others. But when you actually look at the real returns that you receive as an investor 
a lot of times they're actually even less than the properties that on paper are yielding more because you almost always underestimate vacancy on in your Excel spreadsheet in these areas. You almost always underestimate repairs, maintenance, et cetera. And so when it actually happens, these costs are way more than you expect. And so that leads to the return actually not only being lower than what you estimated in your analysis, but also lower than what you might've been able to get with a property that on paper looks like it's yielding less. A hundred percent. I think that was the naivete of me getting into it. And probably kind of what you're alluding to, like you've seen this time and time again. It was like, you plug in the rent, you plug in the mortgage, the property taxes, some like maybe property management fees, etc. And you're like, boom, this is like a great return. And if you compare this one, this 100K home to like this 170K home or so at the time, like 100K beats 170K. If you don't factor in the fact that like you're getting all this turnover and I don't even know how to factor in break-ins or forecast break-ins, etc. That rings very true. I mean, honestly, in hindsight, I kind of regret not going a little bit upstream because I do think if I went a little bit upstream, I would have been able to hold on to some of those homes even till today. But hey, it's okay. You live and you learn, I suppose. How did you end up in Texas? So take us from a little bit northern California, right? Sacramento to Texas and maybe some of the other markets you've experienced. The majority of the learnings were like these, like I was drawn to these large cities. They, they weren't sort of like the New Yorks or Bostons of the world where it's like ridiculously overpriced. But like these like large metros in the US that had lots of liquidity from sort of an inventory standpoint, but also from like a resident demand standpoint and a really robust economy. Sacramento kind of fit that bill. But given the profile of homes that I was looking for, there just wasn't enough of it. And so kind of started looking out, out of state now that it felt like I had some confidence in, in sort of my ability to buy and look at real estate, etc. Texas became a really interesting market. I mean, it looked like there was a lot of institutional demand for the markets in Texas. It looked like it was still relatively affordable without being sort of the cheapest homes in the cities, etc. And it looked like sort of the yields were good in neighborhoods that I felt good about being able to hold for the long run. Landed in Houston and bought a handful of homes there. Were those single family as well? Yeah, also single family. Dabbled with like small duplexes and whatnot along the way, or small multifamily along the way, but was always kind of drawn to a single family given Something that I really always liked was the fact that the liquidity element, like if you bought a handful of single family homes, if for whatever reason I I needed some cash, I'd be able to perhaps sell one off versus rolling all of that into kind of a multifamily. And if I needed cash, I would have to sell off the the entire thing. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about the single family asset class in a little bit. And I have some opinions there too that I want to chat about. But You loved real estate so much through these experiences. You decided to start a real estate company called DoorVest. What made you want to start DoorVest? Why not just continue to keep your sales job, scale real estate, build a big portfolio? Why start a real estate company? It's very personal and probably similar to kind of what we touched upon earlier. It was like this Roomba that hit a wall and then sort of pivoted from there. The long story short was like, had a startup job started buying a handful of homes again, sort of nights and weekends. I got sick of startups. I was like, this is sort of a pipe dream. And like, I should just go work at a big company and make more money, great benefits, work less hours, etc. Make more cash so I could buy more real estate so I could get closer to retiring on a beach. This was literally what I thought of at the time. 
And as I kind of got closer and closer to that, there felt like something was missing. I think this was a very privileged viewpoint, but I was sort of at the top of my earnings career and I've never gotten even close to that, even now today as well, from a a salary standpoint. Like what what felt like to me uh, a good portfolio of real estate, but I felt unhappy. I felt like there was probably something missing too. I ended up going to work different startup. It was a company called Human Interest. And it was a company that was more aligned with kind of what I cared about personally. So Human Interest was a startup that did 401ks for, for other startups, up sort of the personal finance angle, and then also gave me the ability to scratch my itch uh, around working in startups, contributing more, having some, I guess, purpose. I know it's pretty cliche nowadays to, to speak about that. But ended up at Human Interest, continued to do real estate investing on the side. Um, and then along the way, friends, and I'm sure you've experienced the exact same thing, if not e- even more than me, but friends, coworkers, friends of friends would consistently come to me like, Hey, I have some savings. I've been dabbling with investing. Maybe I've traded some stocks and have some crypto, etc. And I heard you do real estate. Like, Can you show me how to get started? It sounds like an awesome idea. I ended up building up sort of this playbook. It was like a 15 point checklist of like, here's how you find an agent and here's how you look at markets and here's how you analyze a home. And like it went down the entire list and I would hand it over to these people. And probably over the course of five years, 60 plus conversations or so, hand it over to them, send them off on their way. I'm like, hey, give me a ring, shoot me a text. Like I'm here. Anytime, like I love this stuff and I'll, I'll walk you through every single piece of it. Usually I didn't hear back. Maybe sometimes I'd hear like they'd be like, Oh, what'd you think of this home? And I'm like, I like it because of this. I don't like it because of this. You should just write an offer and get an inspection, whatever it was. And then I would send them off on their way. Three months later, we would catch up. Maybe we were hanging out. Maybe we bumped into each other with some friends or whatever it was. I'm like, How did you do? And they're like, Well, couldn't get started actually have more capital now because I've been saving up for the last three months. Can I just give you this cash and you do it for me? And for some reason, it took me like 60 plus conversations for it to really click. There was some sort of gap here. But ultimately, that that ended up being sort of the, the genesis of DoorVest. And so that's what DoorVest does now is you help other people buy single family rental homes? Yeah. In a nutshell, we make it easy for folks to, to buy a, an investment home. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. 
That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. Where does Dorvest fit into there? Like, how do they make money? How do you guys make money? I guess it kind of starts with the customer journey. Taking a lens from sort of the the robo-advisors on the financial services side and then pairing that with sort of real estate investing. How much did a consumer have saved up as a down payment? What sort of returns or cap rates or yields were they hoping for? What's their general risk profile? Like, are you sure you want this super high yielding home? Or do you actually have a like an awesome day job that you don't need this cash to sort of live on? And maybe we should focus on sort of a home in a great neighborhood, etc. Or maybe something in between. We'll start with the customer and their investment preferences, and then we'll source. We'll source a home, we'll buy it, we'll renovate it, we'll lease it out, and then bring back sort of the finished investment home to the customer. They'll purchase it from us. We get a cut of that transaction. And then once they close and take title, we'll operate it and get sort of a cut as an asset management fee. Lastly, hopefully, if customers get a good home that they like, they have happy residents that are paying rents, that, that sort of thing, and save up for their next down payment. Hopefully, they come back and they begin to, to add more homes under management which is kind of how we position ourselves as a business. 
So you're making money on a monthly basis as like a property manager would say eight, 10, 12%, something like that. But what does the model look like on the front end? You said you take a fee during the acquisition. What does that look like? Is it, you know, I know agents obviously take commissions. Is it kind of like that? Are you guys acting as the agent? Like, what does that look like? Similar, but different. We focus on homes that need quite a bit of rehab, 20, 25% of acquisition price in renovations. Homes, as you know, that need quite a bit of love, sell for a discount because they can't sell on the open market. We'll buy the, the, the home on customer behalf with our own cash. We'll renovate the home on customer behalf with our own cash. And then we'll sell it back to the consumer. We target about a 5% cut on that. So you could think of about a 200K home on average. We'll, we'll make about 10,000 on sort of the transactional piece. So are you guys sending... Are you doing cold outreach like a, a typical investor would? Are you sending postcards, letters, cold calling to find all these off-market deals like a normal real estate investor would? Yeah. So we're doing sort of the direct stuff. And then we work a lot with wholesalers which I'm sure since you're in real estate, you got the texts and the calls and stuff all the time. We, we I got a postcard yesterday. Nice. Yeah. We get stacks. Like We as a company, given our large portfolio, we get stacks of mail all the time with that as well. But we work a lot with wholesalers as well. Why wouldn't you just keep the deals for yourself? I think that would be a lot more lucrative. I mean, 10,000, if you're doing it at scale, obviously that can, that can add up. But I mean, buying a property, renovating it, et cetera. If you do a cash out refi, you could be into these homes with you know very little capital still left in the deal if you do it right. Sounds like you guys are getting some good deals off market. I mean, it just seems like a more lucrative model. So why this model? There's two answers. There's kind of the business answer and sort of the emotional or psychological answer. The psychological piece is like, I mean, ultimately, the hope and the aspiration of Dorvest, the company, is to be able to help sort of everyday people own and participate in real estate without sort of the risk and sort of the heartache that I experienced myself. And so that's kind of part of it. 70% of our customers are first-time homeowners. One of the stats I'm particularly proud of. Um, and so how do we kind of expand this reach and hit more people, that, that sort of thing. On the business side, I think that everyday retail investors, sort of folks that are getting 30-year fixed mortgages, etc., like they're able to generate really good returns for themselves. Given that they have cheap cost of capital, they have government subsidized tax advantages. I think we're able to deliver on a good investment while still being able to make some money as a company too. I think the 10K is kind of where we're at today, but at scale, it also looks really different and we should be able to participate more. This is a uh, hot off the press, but uh, we're getting ready to launch our first version of embedded mortgage that should streamline our customer experience and then also help us make a little bit more more money. And then over time, doing more mortgage title things of that nature, um, and layering on other financial products to make it, I guess, more lucrative for the company. Embedded mortgage just means that the person that's purchasing the home can get a mortgage through you guys. And I'm assuming you outsource that to another firm. They do the actual underwriting and mortgage origination, and you guys just take a fee for providing that lead to them. You said it better than I could have said it myself. I want to go back to kind of the off-market piece for a second. So let's just total random numbers here, but just for round numbers too, for easy math. Let's say you purchase a home, super distressed, needs work. You purchase it for 100000 it needs fifty thousand dollars worth of work, so you're into it for one hundred fifty. Now, because you did that, it's worth two hundred. The person that's investing in that deal, do they buy it at the market value of two hundred, and you keep the spread between one fifty and two hundred, or are they still buying it at a little bit of a discount to the market value? If that was the instance, and this has happened before too, 
they would buy it at a little bit of a discount to market value. And actually, at scale, our hope is to almost always be able to sell at a little bit of a discount. And I think at scale, we'll be able to do that because our cost of borrowing debt to fund these transactions goes down, our efficiencies go up, things of that nature. The more sort of illustrative figures are usually we'll buy a home for about 150, then we'll put in about 40K all in cost, and then the, the customer will buy it for about 200. 200 should be within range of market value. Sometimes we're a little bit under market value. How are you financing those acquisitions? Are you using hard money? Funny story is uh, the first 40 or so homes, we used hard money. It was, and then we personally guaranteed it. Uh, and so it was myself and my co-founder and our CTO, Justin. We personally guaranteed sort of the, the first 40 or so homes. And what happened was like, we would get to about five loans with a hard money lender. And then they started getting skittish because they were used to funding people that are buying one house every three months or something like that. And so at one point, we had five or six different hard money lenders that we had active transactions with. And I remember going to one of our board member, like he's invested in like really successful early investor in Honey, Service Titan, all these major successes. He's done very well for himself financially. And I was like, hey, well, we're personally guaranteeing all this. And like our net worth is not that big. Like uh, if something happens, like we need you to bail us out personally. And he kind of chuckled at it. But anyway, the first sort of 40 or so homes were, were funded with hard money. Now we've kind of graduated beyond that and kind of have a revolving line of credit that funds the acquisition and the renovation costs first. How are you managing all that construction? Our team, lots of folks from whether it be institutional real estate backgrounds, so you can think of like open door and invitation homes, or folks that have kind of done this themselves sort of on the side, similar to, to me in the past, folks that have sort of managed lots of renovation projects, they'll oversee the projects. And then we have sort of a network of GCs that, that we tap into. So the GCs aren't on your team. You're going, say you're going to Houston, you'd go into Houston, find a really good GC, build a relationship with them, and then use them for however many projects you can. Exactly. So that's kind of the playbook is like, as we're opening up markets, we'll go and establish the relationships. We'll give them a project. We'll follow along in the project. Hopefully, they do a great job. And then it, it works for both ways. And then we start piling on more projects. And then because we're handing them... I mean, if you the average GC that works with Dorbest, last time we pulled the figures was about 5, five active projects at the time with 40K projects on average as well. And so they're getting a lot of business from us if they're able to deliver. That kind of gives us some scale efficiency and sort of like cost advantages and things of that nature. How hard has that been? Is that like one of your hardest pieces of your business? I can only, I mean, I know there's this whole model is difficult. Finding off market deals is difficult. Capital is difficult. Like, I get that, but I've dealt with contractors myself. There's just not a lot of them, period. And then, kind of going down from that, there's not a lot of good ones. I can only imagine that at scale, this this is going to be difficult. I mean, overall, if we think about the business, Sometimes people ask me like, oh, like what if another competitor comes in and like tries to copy your model or something like that? And like the reason why Dorvest existed was because it was a very deeply personal problem that we were hoping to serve. Like I think a handful of people that are looking to build a really big business and make a lot of money and they go to whiteboard and whatnot, they're like, there's no way we should try to take this on. There's just so many hard and moving pieces along the way. And so to answer your question, 
there's many hard pieces. And I, I do think sort of the, the renovation piece is a, it's a double-edged sword. On one end, it's really challenging. Everything that you mentioned there, and then you compound that at scale. At any given time, we're probably doing 20 or 30 active renovations across multiple markets. And so you kind of compound that and it gets even more challenging at scale. But on the other end, it also puts us in a strong position to be able to buy awesome real estate, really bulletproof the homes and make them rental hardened, and then command sort of the 5% that, that we're targeting. I mean, when it comes to competitors, the reality is there are other, I mean, essentially, if you just boil down into the simplest form, there are other turnkey providers. I mean, that's a kind of essentially what you guys are doing in a sense. So, I mean, there are tons of other ones, but what's interesting is that you guys are more, a lot more, given that you're in the Valley, you're a lot more kind of focused on tech, I guess I would say, is that you're like more a tech company or at least valuations and things like that are coming more from a tech company perspective than maybe some of these other turnkey providers that if anybody has ever like looked at their websites, it, it looks like they're the historical kind of real estate company that you would imagine is that they're there like stuck in the kind of olden days a little bit with technology and things like that. So I think you guys were more of the modern version of that. Is is that kind of what you would agree with? Yeah. I mean, if you were to boil it down, sort of a, a modern day turnkey provider is kind of at the core of it. I think certainly when we started out, it was just like Justin and me and a handful of people manually doing everything. And so it very much looked like any other turnkey provider. As we've continued to develop and sort of invest in engineering, etc., like I think over time it looks more like a platform. And so kind of our aspiration is like, and obviously such a long way to go, but our aspiration is to sort of build the Amazon of investment homeownership. Like how do you start with a consumer and their preferences, whether they stated it or whether it's based on their behaviors, and then find homes that we think match their criteria, and then hopefully they can check out entirely online. Yeah, I mean, something that's been really cool is like most of our customers have never seen the homes. Most of our customers have sort of been able to buy the home sort of within the comfort of their couch or their laptop, that sort of thing, and continuing to build and make that easier over time. On a monthly basis, is the only fee you guys take the property management fee? Yeah, as of right now, just the 10% property management fee is kind of where we're at. So when you sign up for an account on your website, there are three benefits that are listed for DoorVest, kind of gives examples of why people should join DoorVest. And two of them really caught my attention. We already talked about one of them, which was being able to purchase exclusive off-market real estate deals. I think that's really cool. The second one is that the first year of rental income is guaranteed. I was pretty surprised to read that. I was not expecting that. So how and why does DoorVest guarantee the first year of rental income? A lot of this boils down to sort of the nuts and bolts of the business. If we took a step back, Remember that we're buying all these homes and we're renovating and we're placing a net new resident. Sort of the the default rate on kind of the the first year, especially if we have sort of stringent resident underwriting criteria, uh, should be low. Our belief at the time was like, if we feel so good about our residents, why don't we put our stamp of approval and kind of back and put our our money where our mouth is on that? Uh, And so that's kind of how we ended up with the resident guarantee. So what if you can't find a tenant in the first place for that property? I mean, if you're, you're buying in good areas, you're making the homes really nice, it's probably a really low probability, especially I think even more so with single family homes maybe than some other types of assets. But what, what happens in that case? That's never really happened because we're focused on segments of the market where there's a lot of resident liquidity. It's not like we're buying like 
a sample size of one home, like the most expensive home in like the nicest neighborhood where maybe there's one resident that, that might rent it. It's sort of like middle of the pack. And so if that's the case, it's really a function of rents. So our average rent is about 1700 If we, for whatever reason, mispriced it, which doesn't happen too frequently, if we go down, call it 50 bucks, 100 bucks, perhaps, we should be able to fill it within sort of a, a matter of time. So I said earlier that we would get to this, and I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. Single family properties are just, they're hard to scale. I've experienced it myself. I've had six or seven in my portfolio at one time. I know each process is, you know, as you scale, it just is a little bit difficult. And this leads to a lot of people moving away from single family assets to commercial properties, short-term rentals, larger multifamily properties. I mean, the reality is closing on a duplex, a triplex, fourplex, five units, six units, 10 units really is not much more difficult than a single family home. Paperwork's the same, kind of process is very similar. You start getting bigger than that, it, it changes a little bit. But for the most part, you could probably do up to seven, 10 units and it's very similar to a single family home and you're making a lot more money than, but you're putting in the same amount of effort. So why is Dorvest currently so focused on single family properties? And do you see that changing in the future? Yeah, tell me about it. I have a pretty busy job and I'm buying a Dorvas home right now. And there's like, I think I just got this last night. It was like, uh, for my mortgage lender, it was like 15 conditions on the mortgage. And it's like all this paperwork. And uh, I agree, it's really painful in general. I think the reason why we focus on single family as of right now is just the accessibility. In general, like a, a single family home is cheaper than a duplex right across the street, etc. We've done sort of small multifamily. I think that the largest one was probably a quadplex or so. Kind of the, the focus is on accessibility. I think in due time, and so maybe we should talk again in five years or something, we'll expand to other asset classes. Who knows what they'll be? And I think it'll be a strong function of customer demand. Uh, but for the time being, accessibility is kind of the, the biggest criteria. Single family is kind of the, the starting point. And then hopefully over time, we could layer in the immediate future, we could layer in sort of lending products to even bring down the, the capital barrier a bit more too. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Is the down payment still required 20% like a typical traditional loan would be for an investment property? Yeah, 20% is kind of the standard. I've seen 15 a couple from a couple of lenders. I haven't really looked into it, but that does carry PMI for, uh, as far as I understand. I've seen a couple 15 as well, but generally it's 20, 25. And I'm sure in this market, it's probably even pushing closer to 25, maybe even 30 in, in some cases. Now, the scalability, I mean, point blank sucks with single family homes. But what is nice, at least in my experience, and you've probably had a similar experience, I'm curious to hear if you have, is that you can often find get a really good tenant base with a single family home, especially if you're buying in good areas, which it sounds like you are now. My single family homes are always in great areas. And so that led to families renting it rather than a single guy or a single guy and a girlfriend or, or vice versa, You know, just kind of more of like an apartment style. And so these people, they take care of it. They treat it like it's their own home. They have a nice yard, maybe a garage, et cetera. So they really treat it as if they own it. You know, It's their family home. And so I've noticed that that leads to really good tenants, which leads to really easy management. Have you noticed kind of the same thing? Yeah. I mean, that's 100% it too. It's similar to my personal investing thesis is just like high quality homes in great neighborhoods that I could sort of, I mean, effectively set it and forget it, right? Like uh, buy the home, do like the painful stuff up front uh, and then kind of have it sit there and grow in value and generate rental income along the way for hopefully like decades is kind of the dream. Single family kind of fits into that criteria. For Dorbest, the company, 
that's also the case too. We're focused on neighborhoods that tend to be more quote-unquote passive, less turnover and things of that nature. That leads that generally leads to a better investment for our customers. And then from a business standpoint, it makes it more feasible for us to manage at scale. So when you buy these properties, you're buying them essentially with cash. I mean, you're using a lot of credit, but in terms of the seller, yep. you're buying with cash. Are you guys taking title? Door vest show up on the deed essentially? Yeah. I guess one nuance to the business model is we lock in customer intent before we purchase a home. The general sort of inspiration there was, was Tesla. If you think about Tesla, the company, they start with sort of a consumer and their car specs, and then they'll ask for a deposit, and then they sort of procure the, ho- or the car based on the consumer specs. Similarly, we start with a customer and their investment objectives. We'll ask for a deposit. We'll find homes based on their criteria in kind of the needs love condition. We'll bring it back to them. So we'll match it to the consumer. And then if they like it, then we'll ask them to sign a contract for it. And then we take the deed, stabilize the home, and then sort of bring back the finished investment home. So does the deed go right from the seller to the investor since you're doing it that way? Or does it go to you first and then to them? Yeah, it goes to to us first as of right now. So do you have to pay transfer tax twice? Yeah, that's kind of uh, the pain of it. But uh, over time, kind of working to minimize that. There's sort of mechanisms where you can keep title open, et cetera, to, to be able to save on sort of the double cost. Yeah, because you couldn't transfer it directly from the seller to the investor because they don't have their financing in place yet. They can't get the financing on a property that's still being renovated. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. That's kind of the double-edged sword once again. It's like um, on one end, we're, we're making this home financeable by conventional 30-year fixed mortgages. As a result, there's sort of like costs and the heavy lifting that we have to do up front for, for that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. 
Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Once the property, you're through that process, you've transferred the deed to the investor, they have the mortgage, everything is done, they own the property and Dorvest is managing it. Can they move it away from Dorvest? Can they just say, hey, I don't want Dorvest to manage this anymore. I just want to own it on my own. The answer is yes. And it happens pretty rarely. But yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately... The customer owns the home. They have full title to it. We're just the property manager on the home. That's probably not the ideal outcome for for us as a business. Hopefully, they buy a home from us. They stay with us for a long time. They save up for more down payment and add more homes under management. But they can definitely do as they see fitting. Do they get a lower property management fee if they scale with you guys? Let's say they get up to 3, 4, 5 with you guys. Does their property management fee go down at all? Not yet. We've kind of flirted with uh, how how do we sort of work the mechanics of that. But uh, yeah, at at this point, it's kind of just 10% flat across the the board. Do investors have to be accredited? No. I mean, ultimately, you're buying a home as I did when I was 20 and as you you did in the past too. And so effectively, you're you're just buying a home. Yeah. You're not investing in a fund that requires any type of accreditation. Yeah. Makes sense. I'm sure it's going to vary from deal to deal, location to location, investor to investor. But just generally speaking, what kind of returns do your investors yield? The trailing average is our cap rate is 6.2 on the cap rate. Of course, it varies from home to home, market to market, and timing as well. But 6.2 is kind of the blanket average. How about on a cash and cash basis? So like, How much cash flow generally are people getting? Numbers used to be higher before their interest rates went up, uh, but right now uh, about five or six percent is kind of what we're targeting. And what markets are you guys in? Are you? I know you said you personally went to Houston for investing. Have you decided to stay there with Dorvest? Are you in some other markets in Texas? What does that look like? For some odd reason, Houston was the first market for Dorvest as well. For just kidding, obvious reasons. Houston was our first market. Dallas was our second. San Antonio, Atlanta. And then the two most recent ones were Columbus, Ohio, and Oklahoma City. Cool. I have a, I, all my single family properties are in Texas as well. All my rentals. Yeah. I, live in, I live in New Hampshire, like we talked about, but all my rentals, they're all single family as well. They're in Texas. They're in a small town about an hour and a half, maybe two hours outside of Dallas, Fort Worth. So I might have to chat with you offline and be like, hey, you got you to gotta go over to this market. I want to I wanna buy some properties over there. Yeah, I wonder if there's overlap. It's possible we'll be operating near you or so. 
So I mentioned to you, Andrew, before that I do love talking real estate. I love learning real estate, but I also love business. Like I just love learning about every type of business. I love learning about all kinds of different business models. And you can probably tell throughout this conversation, I've asked a lot of questions about your business model. And one of those models that I like is equity crowdfunding. And you guys are raising around on WeFunder right now. I don't have necessarily a specific question about it, but I just, I want to learn more about that experience, why you chose to go that path, what it looks like for your business, et cetera. Just tell me a little bit more about it. We to date have raised about 23 million in equity to fund the operations and the R&D and sort of like salaries and things of that nature. And then we've raised about 75 million in debt to fund the, the real estate, like uh, the, what we talked about earlier, the, the renovations and the, the acquisitions. Part of the equity side of it, which is to fund the business Dorvest Inc., the majority of that we've raised through angel investors. We've raised through our friends and family, like uh, lots of folks that became part of the Dorvest story were the genesis of the Dorvest story. The folks that were like, hey, Andrew, like, can you show me how to invest in real estate? Those folks ended up becoming our first customers. And those folks became our first investors as well. Along that same vein, as we sort of brought Dorvest to market in the last two and a half years, we started hearing Dorvest customers, folks that found us, bought a home through us, maybe bought a couple of homes through us, saying that they really liked the model and they wanted to participate and be an owner of the Dorvest company as well. And so we found sort of WeFunder and sort of their community round as sort of a great avenue to be able to open Dorvest up to not only accredited investors that have their pick of any sort of company or asset class for them to invest into, but for non-accredited investors to kind of own a small part of Dorvest, the company. When we raised our, our Series A summer of last year, we opened up a small sliver for our customers to be able to participate in Dorvest. Again, as of recent, we've also opened up a small sliver as we're putting together around right now to give our customers the ability to participate in Dorvest, the company as well. So when you invest in Dorvest through WeFunder, it's through a safe. Can you explain for the audience what a safe is? Probably should Google it. That'll probably do better justice than than me try to explain legal terms. But the short of it is a, a safe was invented by Y Combinator. Y Combinator is known as sort of the most successful startup accelerator. They brought companies to life like Stripe, Airbnb, DoorDash, a lot of household brands. And so they they were some of the earliest investors in those companies. Along that journey of funding these companies at the earliest stages, they found that one of the barriers companies being able to raise funding to get off the ground was just really high legal bills. And so they came up with sort of a, a mechanism, a standardized document to be able to fund startups while minimizing sort of the, the legal fees. Over many iterations, it became known as a SAFE, which is a simple agreement for future equity, which basically means you're investing on a placeholder for equity the next time that a company does a formal equity round. So do you get it at the future valuation or do you get it at the valuation of the day you put the money in? Within the documents, you dictate the cap on the future valuation. For ours, the cap is $60 million, which is the same valuation as our, our Series A from last year. Folks that put in money, it'll be a function of that $60 million cap. If we raise and our next valuation is higher than $60 million, then they're rewarded and they get a discount because they get locked in at that $60 million. 
What is the future of Dorvest? Where do, where do you guys want to go? The hope and dream is to build this multi-decade company that transforms the, the way people think about financial security. Again, back to sort of the, the personal story, like financial security is something that's so deeply personal to me. And then you mix that with real estate, which happens to be Americans' number one source of net worth. How do we sort of build a platform where people could buy their first ever home or first ever investment home with Dorvest? And then from there, sort of build financial services around it. The, sort of the, the standard stuff that we touched on earlier was like the mortgage, the title, etc. But over time, what if we could build banking services and whatnot around Dorvest? If we're able to execute on that, I think we build this enduring public company. It's kind of one step at a time as we try to make our way there. Is the goal to go public rather than be acquired? The dream is to go public and in some time frame. But the reality is uh, we're kind of just focused on the next 6 to 12 months. And then we hit these milestones and then we keep trying to grow from there. So at the end of my episodes, I'd like to turn the tables and let the guest ask me a question. So Andrew, what question do you have for me? I've been looking forward to this one. I combed through some of your episodes. I don't think it's been asked, but uh, maybe it has. If that's the case, then that's on me. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think your background is really interesting. It's non-traditional. Um, there was elements of it where sort of I aspired to. If we went back six, seven years ago, whatever, like a role in finance was something that I kind of wanted to do. Never got around to doing it. Obviously, have many elements of it in sort of my day job now. But podcasting is also really cool. And I feel like you, you, by way of being a podcast host, have sort of this angle to chatting with hopefully interesting people, lots of different stories, that sort of thing. Podcasting, how did you get into it? What's the motivation? Curious to hear your story around it. Yeah. So I got into podcasting. I'll kind of give you the short version. It's a little bit of a longer story, but short version is I found a podcast 2014, 2015. It was called We Study Billionaires, most of popular stock investing podcasts in the world. I was listening to it all the time. First podcast I ever listened to. And 5 a.m. one day, I'm driving to the gym. I forget exactly what year this was, maybe 2017, 2018 at some point. And they mentioned on the episode that they were looking for a host for a new show. They had built a really well-known brand, kind of like a TV station, essentially, is the best way I can explain it, or like a radio station. And they wanted to leverage that brand to launch additional shows. So they said, hey, we're looking for a host to launch another show. It's going to be all about Silicon Valley and tech. Like, If you're interested, reach out. And I remember, like I said, it was 5 a.m. I'm driving to the gym. I'm like, man, I would love to do that. But I don't live in the Valley and I don't know anything about tech. So I guess I can't do it. Just kind of forgot about it. And that was that. And then a couple months later, maybe six months later, they had the same ad. But this time it was for a real estate show. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I'm a real estate investor. I had very little experience, but I had a little bit. And so I said, all right, let me let me see what I can do. And so I reached out and ultimately I got denied. And then I just kind of kept persevering, persevering. One thing led to another. And we launched a pivot or a a spin-off show of We City Billionaires targeted towards millennials, which is still today called Millennial Investing. That show did really, really well. And so then I ended up getting the real estate show as well, which is what we're talking on today. And so, yeah, that, that's how I got into podcasting. In terms of why I wanted to do it, one was I just love talking about this stuff. It's fun. I love learning, learning. I'm a learning machine. I'm always learning. So uh, I was just excited about that. And then I also wanted to kind of give back in a sense of I wanted to be the resource for real estate that I didn't have when I got started. And Bigger Pockets was around and they're great for sure. 
But even back 2019, 2018, 2019, 2020, when this started, like podcasting wasn't as big as it was today. So there wasn't as many resources. So for me, it was just like, I want to be able to put my spin on things and yeah, just kind of share my story and and connect with people and, and learn from awesome people like yourself. Like I also saw it as a massive networking opportunity. I mean, I've sat on calls for hours with Kevin O'Leary and, you know, some like just amazing people because of the podcast. And so that's been really, really fun. Thank you for sharing. And I'm sure that the audience feels this way too, but uh, very glad that you brought this thing to life. I think there's a lot of value in your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Andrew, as we wrap up the conversation, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you, find Dorvest, anywhere you want to send the audience to find your resources. Yeah. Dorvest.com is a good start. Check us out. We'd love to have you and kind of hear your thoughts on on the platform. Uh, and then if you have any specific questions, definitely shoot it my way. Andrew at Dorvest.com. Love talking about finance, personal finance, that sort of thing. Also real estate. And then uh, I don't think I have the answers to everything. In fact, probably just a small sliver of things I think I have answers to. And so if anything, I could try to point you in the right direction too. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for... I know you're on vacation. Thank you for taking time out of your vacation to chat with me, join me on the show. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Excited to keep it going. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.